Hello and welcome to the Agris Church Podcast. I'm ruling and teaching Elder Taylor DeSoto. I'm lead pastor Dane Johansson. And today we're going to give a little bit of an update on why we haven't been podcasting at all. And we're going to get into some really fun stuff with Carl Bart and Van Til and Presup. And also we're going to be talking a little bit about Solus Christus. Mm. Uh, so I just wanted to start and give a little bit of an explanation as to where we've been for the last three weeks or so. Uh, just crazy life has happened and I... You know, in the, the span of the last three weeks, totaled my car, um, looking for job situation, job stability, because I am bivocational. Uh, so I'm, I'm just praising God that I'm alive because the car accident was pretty severe. And, and that your family wasn't with you. And my family wasn't with me. They were, they were at home. Uh, so we would be in a very much different place today if that was the case. It's all Kwaku's fault. Yeah, it's all, well, so I was going to go watch the... Uh, the debate, I got was invited by uh, one of the, the team members over at Apologia Radio, Apologia Studios. Uh, they, I was going to go be part of the studio audience for the Dr. White and Kwaku uh, debate that, that Pastor Jeff Durbin was uh, moderating. And mm. I was really excited about that. And I was stopped on the freeway and somebody rear-ended me. Mm. Uh, so that that was that was unfortunately something that happened, but God is good and I'm okay. Yep. Uh, I sprained my shoulder and kind of hurt my back a little bit, but other than that, then I'm 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 doing great. So praise God. Um, so Dane, what are you reading? Um, well, in the past four weeks, uh, obviously a lot, three or four weeks, whatever it's been. Um, this week in particular, though, um, I have been working on. been working on uh, Van Til's, well actually Greg Bonson's book on Van Til's apologetics. Um, I listened to Divine Line the other night, uh, Dr. White was talking about presuppositionalism and it just got me really excited. I remember I had this on my shelf and also it goes along with what we're going to be talking to talking about tonight anyway with uh, Van Til and presuppositional apologetics and it's just, it's a great book. I mean if you could read one book on presuppositionalism, um, this is a hard one, but even if you just read certain chapters in it, it's great because Van Til himself is pretty difficult to read. Yeah. Um, he, he doesn't get his point across as well as he he would have liked um, because his first language was Dutch and not English. Um, yep. he, he was able to communicate very well in English. It's just he's not as easy to read as you would wish, especially with a topic like presuppositionalism. So Bonson, this book is actually Bonson introducing things and then having extensive quotes with footnotes and commentary explaining Van Til. Uh, a little more easily. Um, Bonson's my favorite Van Til commentator. Oh, honestly. for sure, for sure. Great, yeah, it's great. I'm listening to a lot of biographies about him as well. Yeah, um, close friends and stuff. Anyway, um, reading that. Also, meditations on preaching put out by Log College Press. Um, I got sent a couple of things from them. I reviewed one of the books on our uh, on our blog on the Agros Church mm-hmm. blog. Uh, I, I reviewed one of the books they sent me a little pamphlet. Um, and I'm working through this as well. It's called Meditations on Preaching. It's by Francis James Grimke. Um, he was a half-white, half-African-American uh, son of a slave owner, actually, um, who went to Princeton and became a prolific preacher, and he wrote just an amazing book on preaching, and it's, it's really awesome. So that's been cool to dive into. Also, tomorrow and during our... Uh, Men's study, we're going through Mortification of Sin by John Owen and a little uh, study guide that goes with it. 
So it's been a few years since I read this book. Um, I have the volume six edition of his works. I didn't, I've never actually read this abridged, abridged version and having read the other one multiple, multiple times, this is actually a great abridgment. Um, still pretty much all of the necessary content is there. It's also made very much easier to read. If, you, if you've read John Elwin in his original writings, he's a, he's a difficult author to read. Um, worth every, worth every, second you put into him but he's definitely difficult to read but so working on that and last of all still just plugging away through uh christian complete armor by william gurnall i've been trying to reroute a lot of my reading to just just reading puritans just trying to read as many puritans as i can realize life is short and the puritans are long and good so <laughs> i'll read that. that's legalistic bro <clears throat> yeah oh i also yeah i forgot i want to show these I, I got this in today it's uh doom barton cool. oaks medieval library edition of the Vulgate New Testament, and it's just a beautiful volume, so I'm trying to keep up on my Latin, and so this is a good way to read a couple chapters, or at least a couple pages in Latin every day. It's got the Dewey Reams translation on one side of the page, mm -hmm. on the other side of the page, the Latin Vulgate, so I can keep up on my Latin that way. And then I was in the uh, bookstore with Scott the other day, and I came across um, the Joint Association of Classical Teachers Greek Course called Reading Greek. They have a new edition out, but this is one of the older editions that's pretty expensive, so I found it really cheap. So I got it. Um, oh, is that what you got at Bookman's? Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, it's been good. Um, it's an introductory course, but uh, I like to try to have as many different perspectives on, on things. And it's just got good readings and good vocabulary help. So I've been diving into that and also Athanase with you. So that's pretty much been my reading other than scripture and stuff that we've been doing for different studies and yep. uh, podcasts today and sermons. So. Excellent. Bye. I am diving into these two as well for the men's study that we're doing. The, the reason, it's kind of funny, the first time I read The Mortification of Sin, uh, Dane told me that he was reading it. It was probably six years ago now, maybe. Mm. It, was, it was a while ago, and I guess... Uh, Everyone else said, "Dude, that's that's legalistic, bro. Like you can't, you don't read Puritans." Like it was, <laughs> yeah. and, and and I I was I read it during I was working at uh, Circle K Corporate at the time, mm. and I, I I downloaded it on my it was it was a free iBook actually mm. or ninety nine cents maybe, and I I downloaded it and I read it on my breaks at Circle K and was like completely blown away. Yeah. So I'm I'm really excited about that. Uh, we're gonna be able to take the 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 young men at our church through that. And I guess we're young men too, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then we're also taking him through. It's another Puritan paperback by Thomas Watson, um, the Doctrine of Repentance, and that's I'm really excited about. By the way, plug for Puritan paperbacks. Oh my gosh. Uh, they, I mean, they the the very cheap, very accessible, um, extremely affordable, and just priceless treasures. Mm. Uh, I'm sure if you've been to a Reformed friend's house, they probably have a handful of Puritan paperbacks. Yeah. I buy them even just to give away because right. I, I have so many of the sets. Yep. Um, they, they can be intimidating. You look at, I don't think the camera's picking them up, but I have an entire wall right here of mm -hmm. 12, 13, 16, 22 volume sets of Puritan <laughs> tiny print, 600 page each. So uh, that can be yep. very intimidating. But basically, it's the, all these all these huge tomes that they wrote, that they wrote were made up of sermons. Yep. Um, that they then re, kind of reworked into books. And a lot of them are very short. It's just there's so many of them that they're in these huge books. So the Puritan paperbacks, they've taken them, they've kind of abridged them. Uh, updated the English a bit so it's easier to read, and uh, they're 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 priceless. Right, <clears throat> and, and I, I think another thing is also cool to point out. 
you can actually buy or download individual sermons. Like, for example, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry, Angry God. Yeah. Like that, you can, that's really, I think I got mine for like a dollar on, I needed, I needed $50 cart on Heritage Books, mm. and it was, I had like $49 on my cart, so yeah. I bought a little pamphlet of Sinners in the Hands. Yeah, you can buy got. individual sermons, mm-hmm. either paperback, but also on Kindle, and yeah, they're all, they're on, all there. Uh, you can have just tons of them on free online as well, but yeah, Kindle mm. has tons where you can get just a sermon or a you can get like the works of somebody for a couple bucks. There's actually a project. There's a project out there right now, and I, I don't know. I can't drop the name of it, but you can probably search. If you search any like Puritan author that you are interested in, you can you can find the P, the PDF version basically for free on these sites that they're they're the, they're basically their their uh, their mission is oh, to oh uh, Christian Urethral Library or whatever yeah yeah uh, that's Christian one of them. classical library. Google Books, even. Yeah, that's yeah. one of them. And so, like, you can get, like, Charnock's <laughs> works. Uh, I think you've actually got them right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can get, like, Charnock. You can get all these Puritans that are that a lot of the times are out of print, and you, mm-hmm. can, you can get them. Um, speaking of Puritans, the Puritan mm-hmm. Hope. Uh, this is another book I'm going through, which has been uh, extremely uh, fulfilling and, and, and just filling me up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's by Ian H. Murray. And uh, basically... It's it's a look at historical eschatology as far as Puritan eschatology goes, and if you don't know, uh, I am post millennial not because it's a trend on the Reformed Internet world, but because I think it's exegetically exegetically consistent, hermeneutically mm. consistent, and, uh, and historically consistent. Historically consistent. <clears throat> I, I live. Uh, you can you can ask uh, my friends. I do live life very uh, consistent with my post millennialism. <laughs> <laughs> There's stories, uh, and then the last thing we picked up. So we were in, we were in, the last thing. I thought you were picking the Bible. I was like, the last thing we tried to get to the Bible. We, we picked this guy up. We were in Walgreens. It's called the Power of Faith. Live your best <laughs> life now, and and I opened it up because I just wanted to. I didn't realize that like you know people make this meme <clears throat> in the Reformed blogosphere, right? And it's, it's 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 a pretty common meme, and so I just opened it up, and you know it's got, you know. It's got Pastor Tim Keller in here. Uh, it's got all sorts of people that are getting, you know, Paul White, um, all sorts of pastors, and it basically gives like a very back church, sec- a very secular kind of like look on what these pastors are preaching. Um, and they do, they do actually do Tim Keller pretty well, but it's just funny, like with all the stuff that's going on right now that he's in the magazine with Joel Osteen. Uh, but the it, it, I just found it interesting, like this, you know, it's always interesting to take a look at what society thinks of really uh, famous pastors, celebrity pastors. And mainstream Christians. Mainstream Christians, and, and really just kind of the way it presents it is actually, I mean, it's pretty fair, I would say. But, I was but, surprised. Yeah, it, it's surprisingly fair, but at the same time, it's it, it's just kind of, it feels like a, like a, like, what do you call it, like the same the kind of magazine that the Kardashians are in, but for pastors. <laughs> yes tabloids and then today i was kind of snacking on uh a uh, biography on bart and then i was reading van till's analysis of bart the last couple mm. weeks so that i could participate Which I actually have to show yes. yeah participating a little bit in this conversation today but right now not so much and then as far as ministry is concerned i'm writing uh, a gospel series uh of articles there's mm. seven or eight articles now and we're releasing two a week on the agorist website um, so along with Dane's book reviews that he's doing, we're releasing this uh, gospel series, and, mm. and my goal is to uh, basically present the basic um, fundamental gospel and then show how 
ultimately the gospel uh, uh, affects every single area of your life, which yeah. is very post-millennial, right? So yeah. that, you know, it affects the way you vote. It affects the way that you, that you eat, the way that you live, the way that you interact with people in church and everything, the way you live mm -hmm. your life. Uh, the gospel, there's no place in your life where the gospel doesn't um, point to and, mm -hmm. and, and, and infect and invade and say, this is mine yep. now. This is completely and utterly for Christ now. Yep. And, and so that's the point of the gospel series because I think in today's culture, one of the problems that we, we run into is that, that people's soteriology ends in the heart and in the mind and it doesn't leave their, their body, it doesn't leave, and it doesn't affect their praxis. And that's a problem. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, that's what I'm working on right now, and then I'm also starting, I've got two sort of books that I'm working on. One is going to be the Left Behind series of post-millennialism, and the other one is <laughs> my... Could you explain that? That sounds bad. So, <laughs> the 20th century was essentially <clears throat> informed eschatologically... Oh no, I let you off your leash. Was, it was, ...was informed by fiction novels. Yeah. If you didn't know, if you believe... In any sort of dispensational premillennialism, most likely your theology was uh, was was either birthed from or informed by a combination of the Schofield reference notes, mm -hmm. Bible, and several different fiction stories that were very popularized in the mid and late twentieth century. So one of my, one of my goals with this is to, brought to life by Kirk Cameron. Brought to life by the beautiful <laughs> face of Kirk Cameron, who He's is post millennial now. <laughs> so the goal of it, the goal of this story is, is essentially to bring to life the way that the Left Behind series brought to life uh, the the dispensational theology mm. uh, of the twentieth century, but but to show in the same way through fiction that you know realistic fiction um, that that a post millennial uh, outcome. Mm. Is, is very viable, very probable, very likely, uh, and 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 my hope is that people will consume this book, and and it'll it'll spread like wildfire, and people will accidentally be post mill, just like they were accidentally pre mill dispensationalists. And it's kind of true. Either way, it's a fun project for me. It, it expresses my creativity, and it gives me something to do on my evenings, and I'm enjoying it greatly. So be looking out for that book. If I say that it's released, you know, feel free to go buy it. But I don't know if when when that's going to happen. Yeah. And then uh, the last thing I've been engaging in a lot of frivolous debates on Facebook. There you um, go. Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, <clears throat> pre-sub versus classical, and KJV onlyism. Man, you could get lost in those. Uh, I don't know how I have all the time for that. I, thankfully, I have kind of been off of the Facebook world this week. That's good and for you, man. And it's been really good for nice. You. I've been able to just dive into some reading, and hmm. um, but because I've have been off my computer, I've been, like been forgetting to write as much as I want. Because <laughs> yeah, I've been working on different articles and things as well. So yeah, we're we're trying to you know along along with this podcast, and this is we'll we'll transition to our next segment. But what we're trying to do at Agros is really extend using media uh, as a platform uh, to to give resources to our church mostly. Yeah. And because we believe that that our ministry should first extend to the local body that that yes. we that we're stewarding, and and then secondarily the people that tune in from across the world, um, mm -hmm. we actually found out people are people are tuning in from all over the place. So shout outs to, you. Um, I think Dave Votberg, Dave Votberg and John Kite, John Kite specifically asked for a shout out. So there you go, John. <laughs> it's actually uh, it's actually cool. John Kite commented on my one of my Bible reviews. 
and I was like super excited. So just uh, oh yeah, he's like a big time like book reviewer. Yeah, like, I know. Like I'm, if you go on like most of the like book review sites, like it'll you'll be reading something, and it's like by by John Kite, and you're like oh what the heck? Yeah, like, I was on Logos, John, and I saw that you had. Like blurbs that was like by by or yeah like it popped up on my like yeah um so, so I, I think I think that does you know we're not just just blatantly just shouting out our friends I think it's so important that people are doing book reviews yeah um from the Christian perspective uh, yeah. especially because the reformed Christian perspective especially yeah. because there's a lot of times a lot of books will just get shot down because some uh, either left leaning. Or liberal theologian or, or commentator will come and say, "Oh, this is just a garbage book." It's actually part of the reason why a lot of post-millennial literature hasn't been published yet. It's because the reform community has been so against it for so long, and they didn't think it would be reviewed well. <laughs> yep. So it's really, it, it, it's you know, when, when when solid reformed guys review books, it helps people. Uh, it helps people buy the right resources. So you know, right. praise God for that. What you're doing, that ministry that you're engaging in. So yeah, shout out to John Kite. We appreciate your ministry. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, hopefully this points people to your book reviews and everything. So. Amen. So that leads us into our first segment, which is Solus Christus. I believe we started it. We we did it pretty thoroughly, but yeah. Um, yeah. But I think there's I always more. T- yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I guess yeah. <laughs> my lifetime about Solus Christus. Um, I just kind of wanted to, because because it, it it segues right into our discussion of Karl Barth, presuppositionalism, mm-hmm. all the stuff that we want to get to tonight, and that'll basically be the meat of what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Um, but I did want to start basically showing what where it's where this is all coming from, and I believe a presuppositional apologetic method really emphasizes the the Christ alone, the solus Christus uh, mindset and worldview and theology. Um, not saying that other views can't, but I I feel like presuppositionalism does the most. Uh, for sure. Um, but I wanted to start with uh, chapter 11 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, mm. paragraph 1 on of justification. Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by counting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. Yeah. Not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but mm-hmm. by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for mm-hmm. their whole and soul righteousness. Yeah. They receiving and resting on him and in his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. So this, I mean... Justification, the doctrine of justification is the, the sum of the gospel anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this you see you see sola, sola fide, solus Christus, sola right. gloria. I mean, you see it all in there, but it, specifically it's emphasizing solus Christus. Yep. Um, that it's for Christ's sake alone. It's his righteousness, not ours. It was imputed to us freely mm. by God's grace. Um, yep. It was all what Christ did. It had nothing to do with us. And so one of the Reformation hallmarks, obviously, the five solas stand together, I don't think. Uh, you can you can lose any of them, uh, any one of them, without losing all of them, and right. and because you have any one of them, you have them all. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and solus Christus, I think, would probably uh, sola sola gratia is the one that's, that's talked about the most. Yep. And sola scripture, I think, uh, and maybe with real reformed people, sola dio gloria. But I mean, you, you that's can't. The, forget. That's the least one, the least talked about. I would say the forgotten soli. Yeah, the forgotten solo is a solo deal glory. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's interesting though. I mean, solus Christus, without any of the other solas, you don't you have nothing. Or without solus Christus, you don't have any of the other solas. 
Right. So, uh, or at least they don't matter. They don't. They don't have any meaning or value. Right. Um, and so within within Reformed theology and Reformed Baptists, whether you're, you're Reformed Baptist, you're you're Reformed Presbyterian, you're uh, Dutch Reformed, uh, you're Christian Reformed, all these different denominations that are out there, mm. um, or just a nominally Reformed believer, non-denominational Reformed, Reformed Congregationalist, Reformed Episcopalian. Uh, we don't mean to leave you guys out, but. Um, where are they? Yeah, there, there's few of them, man. If, if, if there's any Australia Reformed Episcopalians, we've got we've got some brothers down there, man. Some brothers and sisters down Listen, there. Listen, if you are a Reformed Episcopalian <laughs> and you're watching this particular webcast, please contact us. We want to have you on the show. We want to we want to just know your experience, and we're praying for you. Like, yeah, no, like in all seriousness, like that's wild. That's yeah. that's crazy, especially in Australia. Like hanging in there. Oh. Pretty sh- pretty sure, like if there's gonna be any sort of reconstruction in Australia, it'll be by the hand of Hillsong Church. Yeah, they're just going to take yeah. over the whole thing. I mean, yeah, the that's, their, that's their kind of their whole uh, what is it? The New Apostolic Reformation. That's their whole thing, anyways. That right. they're going to, they're like very post-millennial in their ideology of like we take, they want to take over all of culture, yeah. but they don't want to do it in a Christ-like way. I mean, sorry, but they want to do it. They want they want to do it by. Um, capitulating to the culture and making Christianity look like the culture. That way they can just be the best at the culture. <laughs> well, it's crazy because you talk to some of these these name-it-and-claim-it sort of uh, word-of-faith churches and movements, and, and you and you talk about the, the, the faith that they have that, that God will actually impact what they're doing, their ministries, the arms of their ministry. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you're talking to somebody who's a reformed post-millennial guy or girl, and then... They get to a place, and then you realize that they're not reformed. They're they 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 are anything like that. They're actually premillennial, most likely, but they have like they have tremendous amounts of faith that God will move mountains, which I think is I think that that's the right. Like we were commenting on Stephen Furtick, how he almost sounded postmillennial sometimes. Yeah. Like it, it's not from good theology, but it's it's through a lot of faith, I think, which is interesting. and that's where you see the dichotomy there of of. These, these people that have horrible theology are sometimes, they, they come off and they speak much more faithfully that God's going to do something with what they're offering and what they're trying to do for the Lord right. than people that are very solid theologically, understand the scriptures, understand the Reformation, understand historical theology, um, often become very pessimistic, often become very uh, non-willing, non unwilling to engage in culture, unwilling right. to engage in, in politics, engage in... in the different spheres of existence in mm. uh, this this life and this realm and this world, yep. um, and and that's that's where you see that you know that that disconnect. Um, like I, I'm through reading. That was something I forgot to mention. I've been reading the Puritan Hope. Through reading that, it's really, you know, I was on the fence. Taylor knows he was very frustrated by it, but uh, you know, I was on the fence of all mill and pre mill, and I, I think I'm or post mill. Sorry, holy cow. Um, leaning more towards post-mill. So, um, from that book, from Ian Murray's exposition of the Puritans and Romans 11, um, I, I, I'm feeling the post-mill uh, probably is the best. Um, either way, I was a very optimistic Amel. Um, right. But e- my point in saying all that is, even if you're not post-mill as a, as a Christian, um, we have to have all the room for optimism because we have to believe the gospel is powerful. We have to believe the gospel is right. going to do something. And let's stop letting these faith preachers steal our word from us, which is faith. Mm. We believe in uh, sola fide, right. faith alone, by grace alone, 
Christ alone, all these things. So let's stand on that and mm. believe that those things are actually going to do something and that they're not going to stay alone. They're going to bear good fruit. They're going to um, increase for the glory of God. Right. When we leave that alone, it's uh, it's kind of it's kind of sad. Right. And I think the the wild thing I was talking about the covenant of redemption with someone today. It was explaining. I gave someone a crash course on Baptist uh, 1689 covenant theology. And just like talking about how in the covenant of redemption for, for those that have not heard that terminology before is essentially the eternal covenant that was made before it all started. Um, the agreement that, that Christ would, you know, the, I like to think that the Carmen Christi, you know, in Philippians two, where, where, where Christ doesn't consider his equality with God to be considered, to be grasped. Mm. And, 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 in you know, in eternity, right. You have this moment where they're making a covenant that, that, that they're purposing to do something in history. Mm. And that's why, I mean, all of covenant theology, whether you're uh, uh, Dutch reformed or Presbyterian or 20th century Baptist or 1689 Federalist, like without Christ and the events of the cross in history, mm. you, you don't get any of that. There's no richness. There's no depth. There's no salvation. There's there's no point in in history. Um, you you don't actually have the actualization of of this faith, this life that we're living. Yep. Um, so I mean, you can you can talk about the the most complex theologies the most complex covenant theology eschatology whatever mm-hmm. but if you don't have christ alone then you don't have any of it there's no point um, right exactly amen yeah and so that's that's why solus christ is, is so important obviously christ is the center of our faith and I, I think if you talk to pretty much any evangelical um though things are changing rapidly in our day um mm-hmm. but you know as a general rule if you talk to pretty much any evangelical whether it's an assemblies of God person to a Methodist to anyone who's actually faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ and and the the authority of Scripture and everything like that, um, wherever regardless of where they stand theologically, you would say uh, let's let's just make everything about Jesus Christ. Let's let's, let's mm-hmm. proclaim Jesus Christ. Let's make Jesus Christ the center of our of our preaching, our teaching, right. our, our thought, our practice, everything. You would usually get an amen from that. Yeah, um, they'd usually be on board with that, and that's that's generally true. I would think. Um, and so when, when you look at that and you look at, uh, re- the reformed tradition and making Christ everything, making Christ all, making Christ center and alone, um, you don't want to emphasize it to the point of where Karl Barth did. Right. And that's where we want to jump into Karl Barth is that Karl Barth, you could say his theology was actually his, his Christology was his theology. His Christology, mm-hmm. his doctrine of Christ, it was all centered around Christ. And that sounds really good, especially mm-hmm. to an evangelical. That sounds really good. Right. Let's make everything about Jesus Christ. It's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. And that sounds even very Reformed, Solus Christus. Right. Okay, well, let's make everything about Jesus Christ. But then when you substitute the, the, the categories that Scripture gives us, the categories historically that have been used to interpret the scriptures and the mm-hmm. hermeneutic that we use to interpret the scriptures um, and replace it with your own interpretation of trying to see Christ in it and your interpretation of what that means. Mm-hmm. It becomes very convoluted, and that's what we saw in Karl, ba- Karl Barth's theology. Um, right. His whole thing was, was Christ being... Uh, center and he was Christocentric in all that he did. So when you talked about scripture, 
you have to talk about Jesus Christ. And, and all these things we could say amen to. So it's a very yeah. subtle discussion. And the reason why I think it's important to talk about Karl Barth is because we're getting into Van Til and, and how much he interacted with Karl Barth. Mm. But also because there is a big movement coming back for Karl Barth. And a lot of these social justice, uh, a lot of the social justice stuff that's coming out of the Reformed and the Evangelical, they're starting to look towards people that have already been propagating the social justice gospel, right. which are usually... Uh, neo-orthodox, uh, progressive Christians right. that are um, studying a lot of Moltmann, Jürgen Moltmann, and, and Pannenberg, and Karl Barth, and mm -hmm. all these things. And from there, at, at, the, at the very kernel of it, when, when the outcome of all of that theology is done, all you have is a social, you have to turn to a social gospel because uh, if everyone's saved anyway, or if there's no afterlife, and all these crazy things that are not biblical or historic, you have nothing else but to turn to to social issues and poli right. politics in that regard. Not politics for the glory of Christ, but politics for you want to you want to make sure that justice is served in this life and equality is had in this life because the next life doesn't matter anyway. Well, and a lot of a lot of people that that like Bart, they they think that that Bart is where the the Reformation and the Enlightenment converged. And that in order for Christianity to survive, they need to go in the direction of Bart. Yeah. Like he was the, he was the the, the, the prodigy and the free thinker and the one that was mm -hmm. going to carry Christianity through the 20th century yeah. into into success. And uh, I, I don't think that that's going to happen. I hope not. But we can talk about that right now. Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. Karl Bart. Just to give you a little bit of background. I mean, this can't be. I mean, one day maybe I'll do something. Um, I would love to do an extensive thing on Karl Bart. But uh, how long the, did you spend studying Karl Barth? About a year and a half. About a year and a half, I studied pretty much literally. I, I became obsessed. I became obsessed because mm -hmm. uh, he's he's very very fascinating. Even as you mm -hmm. just because you didn't really know anything about Bart until even just a few months ago when I started right. telling you things and you're like, wow, I can understand why people get obsessed with him because he is very fascinating. His mm -hmm. thought, the way he thought, uh, the things he did know, the things he did espouse are are very uh, just compelling and accurate. Um, and his rejection of liberalism and his return to the Bible and his return to Christ and the mm. deity of Christ and all these things that sound so good and right. are so true, but the way that they were nuanced and the way that they were affected by enlightenment thinking right. uh, drastically changed uh, mm. what, what the outcome of that actually was. Right. Well, <clears throat> a lot of, a lot, and they even say, like a lot of Bart commentators uh, say that at the beginning of his writing, you know, he starts off very paradoxical and very dialectical. And mm -hmm. then he kind of moves more scholastic as he gets older and older and older. Mm -hmm. But he still, I think at the end of his life, hadn't quite torn off the robe of the Enlightenment. Like, he still yeah. hadn't shucked that off. And well, then, yeah, and, we'll, and we'll, get, we'll get into that, some of his specific works. But it's especially his Epistle to the Romans, his commentary mm -hmm. on the Book of Romans, both editions, the first and the second edition, yeah. um, were very influenced by Kierkegaard at the time. And time and eternity, uh, mm -hmm. God and man... Um, just the, the physical and non-physical, spiritual and non-spiritual, all these kinds of things were, were these juxtapositions. He, he really emphasized on those kinds of things. Um, mm. And, it, and it's, it, it leveled out as he grew older and began teaching more and writing more. But that, that's, that's a kernel of thought. People will say there's two Barts. Some will say there's three Barts, basically completely different thinkings. Um, I, I tend to reject that, that although his thinking and his theology changed on certain subjects and, and developed... Um, I wouldn't say there's two. When you read the Romans Bart, you're reading a completely different Bart than when you read, uh, say, Evangelical Theology Bart or um, the last few volumes of the Dogmatics or anything like that. Anyway, 
I'm getting ahead um, because I did spend over a year and a half. Like I became obsessed, like reading. I would skip reading my Bible to read Bart. I would read biographies of Bart. I would read um, hundreds of pages of Bart. <laughs> I did just, you ever I get could... into the White Elephant? I've never read Bart in German, no. <laughs> no. I mean, I have, and some of the German books I have, like little like anthologies of right. uh, different authors, but uh, I wanted to buy The White Elephant. Um, if it, the White Elephant is his full church dogmatics in uh, German, which was his original language that he wrote them in. And they call him The White Elephant because uh, if you've seen ever seen the church dogmatics anyway, even in the English translation of them, it, it, it'll take up over you know, one of these shelves, a complete, a complete shelf and over probably. Um, and especially in the German edition, they were very tall, um, and thick and they were bound in a white leather. And so they call them the white elephant <laughs> because it's just this massive white, uh, wall of, of writing. Um, but Karl Barth, he was born in 1886. Um, he was born in Switzerland. He was a Swiss, uh, he he was Swiss. He was a Swiss theologian. He was a Swiss thinker. He was a Swiss man at his heart. Uh, and, and Switzerland is interesting in that they speak multiple languages there. Um, the area where he was was primarily a uh, German-speaking area, so he was a German speaker, but he had a uh, Swiss uh, accent to it and a Swiss uh, dialect of German. He came from a long line on both sides of his mom and his dad of of academics, of clergymen of, 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 of great thinkers and professors and, and pastors and professors. So it's, it's pretty crazy. His, um, he described his own upbringing, his family as bookish and outdoorsy. So it's kind of an interesting, they loved to be outdoors and, and they loved music. They were huge on music. Mozart was a huge, uh, thing for Bart. He loved Mozart. He learned how to play the violin and the flute and everything at, at a young age, the piano. He was, his life was filled with music and laughter and uh, many other things on top of his uh, theological studies and how serious he took things like Nazism and mm. Hitler and the and World War II and everything like that. On top of that, he, he always had a strong uh, love for music. And if you look at Mozart, Mozart's interesting, and there's almost a dialectical... There's a dialectic aspect in Mozart's music itself. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's it, it just that was his whole way of thinking. So he uh, settled on a career in theology very early on <clears throat> and when he was in around 17 or so i think he went off to uh bern and uh studied there then he went to berlin and then from berlin he studied there he went to berlin to study under adolf von harnack um who wrote a uh series of uh a, a big set it's seven volumes called the history of dogma mm. um basically where he says that Greek thinking ruined Christianity and the Apostle Paul and everything ruined Christianity and it was it was due <laughs> it was due to uh, it was due to uh, his Greek influence and everything so yeah. he went there and studied there because he was very well known um, then he went to Tübingen uh, in Tübingen he studied under that school of thought which was uh, this very radical critical uh, German school where it was, you know, you divorce the Old Testament, the New Testament, you divorce the Old Testament from the Old Testament. <laughs> you know, you divorce, uh, the, you know, there's there's first, second, and third Isaiah and different uh, authors within Isaiah and everything. So it, it gets kind of crazy. But uh, most importantly, he went to Marburg. And in Marburg, he uh, actually went there to study with uh, uh, Wilhelm, uh, it's not, yeah, Hermann. Yeah, he wanted to study with Wilhelm Hermann. 
um, who was like the guy for the, he, he was well known in the German theological realm for synthesizing his the Christian faith and Neo-Kantian uh, mm. uh, philosophy, and right. it obviously that became a huge mess. Uh, J. Gresham Machen actually he oh, really? went to World War One and all that, and then he uh, he was at Princeton. He he was raised Orthodox Presbyterian, all that, and he went to Germany to study there, and he studied under Hermann, and he was like taken back and captivated by Hermann. He couldn't mm-hmm. believe he 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 loved Hermann because he was he was so passionate about he he said he pre, he preached and when he preached and spoke about Jesus Christ he spoke about Jesus Christ with in such an exalted fashion he never even heard among the Presbyterians and stuff and this is a liberal guy yeah um, he we almost lost Jay Gershom Machen thank God we but, didn't yeah Amen because <laughs> but what's what's crazy is that God's providence in that that he was then able to come back and you know his most famous work what was his most famous work I don't know Machen it's a uh, Christianity and liberalism. So he was able to. I, I only, I'm only familiar really with his Greek stuff. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. He wrote uh, Christianity and liberalism. Wow. So that's crazy. He, he he brought it down to the fact that it's two different religions. It's completely different. So it's a very small book, but it's mm. a very powerful book. Yeah. Anyway, he went there to study with Hermann. He finished his studies in 1909, um, and he was a convinced member of the Hermannian school of thought. He was uh, completely on board with it. That's he was as liberal as liberal could be. He was actually called the rising star of. Uh, the, the German liberal theological movement. This is Bart again. Uh, yeah, at Bart. Yeah. At Bart, they wanted to. The, he he was like what they were putting their hope in. Like he's the next generation. He was going to be the guy. He was going to be the Hermann of the next wow. generation of Germans. So in 1909, he leaves, <clears throat> and then uh, he began working for the well-known liberal theological journal Die Kirchliche Welt, uh, the Christian World in German, mm-hmm. um, and so they were writing tons of articles, and that was his job, was writing just all sorts of things. Basically, with, with liberal Christianity in the 1800s, 1900s, starting with Schleiermacher, it, it became oh. about people's progress. Uh, huh. the, the kind of the, the modernism, the romantic thinking of, of humanity is progressing to get better. Um, whether it be the arts, whether it be religion, philosophy, um, politics, everything is getting better. Um, and progressing. And so the idea of sin was a made-up thing that we didn't need. Um, it, it, was, it was imposed by religion on us. Um, true religion just needed to understand the fatherliness of God. Um, Jesus Christ was just a man. Jesus of Nazareth was not the Christ. The Christ was a, uh, a mythological aspect that, that the church preached based on its mm-hmm. uh, German, or its uh, Greek thinking, uh, uh, looking at the Old Testament. So, um, anyway, from there, he was writing all those kind of articles. He went on to be an assistant pastor. Again, he was in Switzerland. He went back home to Switzerland, uh, in Geneva. He was an assistant pastor Didn't in Geneva. Didn't he preach at, at he Calvin's preached pulpit? At Calvin's, he preached from Calvin's pulpit for years, a couple years. He, he, and, and it was a tiny little church. I mean, it was still St. Pierre's and it was this big, this big church, um, where all this history had happened and he was mm. preaching from Calvin's pulpit. And he said he would even consult Calvin's commentaries before he preached Calvin, uh, Calvin's pulpit. But he was just blown away because he felt like he had nothing to say. And, and um, <laughs> there were just a few people there, and they were always critiquing him. And he, he was actually terrified of uh, preaching. <laughs> in uh, 1911, uh, he became the pastor of the Reformed Church in Saffenville. And uh, 
from there, he was married right right after that. He was married in 1913, and then uh, when he was there, he had to preach. When he when he was in Geneva, he only had to preach like every couple weeks. Here, he was had to preach three or four times a week, hmm. and it it terrified him. He hated it because he said he had nothing to say. And actually, a, a great synthesis of Karl Barth um, is by Joseph L. Mangina, uh, Karl Barth. Theologian of Christian Witness. Um, it's brought out by Westminster John Knox. Um, obviously, he's friendly towards Bart, but um, it, it's been a really good read. Uh, I read it a couple times actually when I was going through this phase, and I found it very helpful. Um, here's what here's what Karl Bart said about preaching, and this is this is pretty crazy. Um, uh, and no sooner had Bart arrived in Sothenville than he found himself embroiled in a bitter dispute between factory workers and owners. Mm. Uh, with startling swiftness, he aligned himself with the cause of the workers, a move that alienated him in his congregation, alienated him from many in his congregation, and earned him the title the Red Pastor. Mm. So communist, or, you know. Right. Um, by 1915, he'd become an active religious socialist, and that's not the same as it is today, but it was still yeah. not good. Yet the labor struggle was not the only challenge Bart faced. In fact, he's going to show that this is there's something far worse that Bart feared than all these debates and, and this politics. Week by week, he found that he was expected to mount the pulpit and say something about God. This is a task for which his high culture university training had not prepared him. Liberal theologians were convinced that to talk about the highest achievements of the human spirit, religion, morality, culture, value, was to talk about God. Bart came to believe otherwise. Talk mm. about God was something different, something startling, strange, and new. How is the preacher to fulfill the congregation's expectation that he will preach God's word when all he has at his disposal are mere human words? Looking back on this period, Bart often cited his terror at preaching as the major factor in his break with liberalism. He was so afraid of preaching that it, because it, 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 it punched him right in the face, he had, he had to stand face to face with the fact that he had nothing to say. And actually, there's, there's a, I have a volume over there with my Bart stuff. I have two shelves of Bart and relate, it's, it's and, actually like two shelves like this this wide yeah yeah it's <laughs> there's a lot of bart stuff uh and it's stacked up on top anyway i have a book in there uh it's it's two sermons it's called uh the word the word in the world and it's actually pretty interesting there's one that he preached at a sermon or at a prison in basel a sermon that he preached at a prison in basel which he did Late, a lot of prison preaching yes he did on, yeah and it was later on in his life and mm-hmm. then but before that is a sermon from uh Soffenville. Or where was he at this point? Um, yeah, he was in Sophomville <clears throat> when he had nothing to say. And so in 1913, he preached on the sinking of the Titanic. And he just, he, because the sinking of the Titanic, it was right before the World War I broke out and people just, mm. people were at, you know, a despair. Uh, he, he, he looked around, he had nothing to say. <laughs> so all of this great training he had left him with nothing to say. And so if you read those two sermons, it's actually hilarious. It's a really short book. It's his attempt to try to say something, and he uses the Titanic as his text and like, tries, <laughs> tries to pull out some sort of Bible verse and everything. And then the other, even though I don't think he went far enough, it was just an expositional sermon on a part of Matthew. It was about uh, Peter getting out mm-hmm. and walking on water. And it was actually, it's a good sermon, but it's a, it's a Bardian sermon for sure. So war breaks out in 1914. Right. Uh, Bart and a fellow pastor, uh, 
who lived on the other side of the hill, uh, which was actually like a 20 mile journey. Um, they used to get together twice a week and they would smoke their pipes and they would talk theology. And it was actually his, his fellow pastor friend, uh, Turnison, uh, he remarked that they needed something quite different. They needed something different. They needed something uh, that was going to put them in a different direction than when they're going. Mm. And uh, that would be able to make an impact on the world. They needed something gonzondas, totally other, which became a very uh, well-known phrase among amongst Bart and his followers mm-hmm. and contemporaries was, Gott ist gonzondas. God is something completely other, totally other. Mm. Um, and so what they decided was, where are we going to find this? Well, both these men have been trained in these liberal seminaries and colleges and they had doctorates and they could read Greek and Hebrew and Latin and Dutch and French and everything else, but they knew nothing about the scriptures. And so what they did, they said, what if we just studied the Bible? And that was like revolutionary. <laughs> they were like, what if we just studied the Bible? And so they started studying the Bible and within uh, a few years, um, Karl Barth had published two commentaries one in 1918, one in 1921, on Paul's epistle to the Roman church uh, called Die Reimerbrief. And uh, he, he published that. And w- one critic called it like this. Um, it, it took the world by storm. It took the theological world by storm. And this was basically this epistle of the Romans. This is the second edition. This is the one that if you hear about uh, Paul, or, uh, Bart on Romans, this is it. This was actually the first Bart book I read. Um, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> um, but definitely you can see where people were getting this excitement about Bart from. He, um, he, it was described as this, that, that basically all the theologians were like children playing on a playground in the sand and, and scooping dirt and playing around. And that Karl Barth's Romans commentary was like a bomb that fell out of the sky and hit the theologians <laughs> playing in the, in the sandbox. And he described it as, they said, if you could describe basically what happened with you, he said, I was looking for comrades. I was looking for people that would stand with me and go, okay, the, what we have is not really Christianity. This is not how it works. Hmm. And would, um, it's not about man. It's about God. He returned to a completely reformed view Hmm. in that sense of it's all about God. It's all about God's sovereignty. It's all about God's grace. It's all about God's purposes. Right. God's faithfulness. Yeah, and he said that basically he described it as he was walking into, it's like a man walking in the dark, stumbles into a church, he's looking for friends, he's, he got lost, and he stumbles into a dark church, and he's fumbling around in the dark trying to find the walls, and he grabs onto a rope and pulls it, and he finds that it was the church bell, and it wakes the entire neighborhood. That's what he described his Romans commentary as. Um, <laughs> from there, he became a professor in a couple different places. By 1930, he was starting to write the church dogmatic. So we have, uh, first you have his Romans commentary. From there, he goes and publishes his dogmatics and outline. He actually preached this right after World War II ended in a bombed out, uh, the, the bombed out shell of the university in Basel. Wow. Or, in, or in Bonn, sorry. Yep. In Bonn. And he preached dogmatics and outlined the, these books. You'll, this is the same book. It's just an older copy that I use. And then this is the one you'll probably find online or in stores. Um, if you just want a quick synthesis to read Bart yourself, it's this is a good one. Dogmatics and outline. Um, he preached that. And from there began writing his Kirchliche Dogmatik, um, which is his church dogmatics. The reason he called it church dogmatics and not Christian institutes, which he originally wanted to call it, mm. was because he believed that the dogmatics should be done in uh, a church setting. Um, hmm. The church should be the one talking about Jesus Christ and God. So 
Um, this is probably one of the most famous volumes right here. It's a uh, volume two, part two. Uh, it's it's broken up into four volumes, the Church Dogmatics, but within those four volumes are 13 books. So <laughs> it, it gets kind of confusing. Um, everything about Bart, he can't just be simple ever. No. Um, this is his doctrine of election. Um, so that's uh, that was a big one. Anyway, I mean... Well, that's, that's, we got that's the crash course on, on Bart a little bit. Yeah, and I'm like out of breath because like I want to try to. You're getting so out. excited. You're like, yeah, because it it is exciting to talk about Bart to read I, Bart, yeah. but then you realize that he just didn't. That's why he's fascinating. You and I were even talking about this. Yeah. That's why Bart's fascinating is that you can see the struggle within him. Right. He wanted to return to the Bible, but the but his just his his enlightenment teaching, his Kierkegaardian mm. existentialist. Uh, enlightenment thinking, though mm-hmm. he could break with Schleiermacher and Hermann and and von Harnack, he he couldn't break all the way um, yep. and and become like the Apostle Paul. Um, and you see him struggle with this his entire life, and that's why he could write hundreds of, or, you know, the the Church Dogmatics, and that's just part of his writings. The Church Dogmatics are nine million words, nine million words in the English translation, that's and there's wild. more in the German. That's wild. Um, Nine million words to talk about God and theology. On top of the church dogmatics, those 13 volumes, on top of that, anywhere from 100 to 1,000 pages, each one of these books, you could publish 90 more volumes. So he, he wrote prolifically. You know what's real? I think I think what, what's so fascinating about Bart to me, is he's, he's kind of the case study in how you're supposed to study historical theology oh definitely uh, because if you if you blink and you're reading down a page of bart and you blink or you stop paying attention for just a second he'll wake you up because he's talking about something completely opposite of what he was just talking about mm-hmm. and if you're not paying attention close to that page you you could you, you you could come to the conclusion that he's talking about something he's not talking about oh yeah and, and you'll find this with and this is something that i found pretty dangerous because i i was, I was i've been for the last two months or so just kind of like perusing bart and reading things about bart and and no one agrees on what bart said not necessarily, and they'll quote him, and, and they, they use Bart, Bart quotes to essentially proof out what they're saying about Bart, but then someone will quote Bart, and it'll be something else, and so the way that mm. I was telling Dane, like, Bart is, and he isn't. Mm. Like, that, that's the way he is. Yes. Like, like, every single part of everything I've read about Bart is that, that he can be this, he could also be that, he's, he's both and, I mean, it's just... Well, what did I tell you earlier? About his when he was asked if he teaches apocatastasis, the doctrine of universal salvation or universalism. What did do you remember what he, I told he you? He does and he doesn't. Yeah, he said he said <laughs> I I don't teach universal salvation, but I don't not teach it. Yeah, <laughs> so that's I mean that's Bart. Um, I, I want you to fill in a little bit more, especially because we need to move to Van Til. Yeah. Um, but I want to read this quote. This was one of the first quotes I read to you about from Bart's own writing. And I, I was and like I was, fa- immediately fascinated he, by it. He calls it the laughter. Uh, this, this chapter in Mangina is called <laughs> the laughter of the angels. And, uh, Bart talks about his own dogmatics. Uh, he was about, you know, halfway mid, mid middle of his life, uh, in his sixties or so. And he said, uh, he was asked about his dogmatics and here's mm-hmm. what he said. The angels laugh at old Carl. They laugh at him because he tries to grasp the truth about God in a book of dogmatics. They laugh at the fact that volume follows volume, and each is thicker than the previous one. As they laugh, they say to one another, Look, here he comes now with his little pushcart full of volumes of the dogmatics. They laugh about how the men who write so much about Karl Barth instead of writing things 
so instead of writing about the things he is trying to write about, truly the angels laugh. So he he saw himself as a as a as a joke. He saw himself as a mockery. That the idea because he thought God was God God ist uh, God's andas because God is so wholly other yep. that we can't even uh, begin to talk about him and. and that not that we shouldn't talk about, it, but we can never fully understand him. And though, from a more reformed view, we would we would God we know much as God wants us to know about him. Yeah, we were actually talking about that earlier. Divine simplicity. Yeah, that, that yeah. God is God is knowable in the person of Jesus yeah. Christ. Um, th- there's there's so much that goes into Karl Barth's theology that that's difficult. Let me lay out two main things because that goes into Van Til and how he responds to it. Right. There, there's an idea in uh, the teaching of the Neo Orthodox. There's a uh, Geschichte. Uh, and uh, history and uh, mythologia. So those three German words would be um, Gesichte is like a story or a myth, and that's where all of the biblical things that happen would fall into, whether it be the Genesis accounts, the narratives, uh, Jesus' birth, death, resurrection, mm-hmm. uh, where it's in this realm of, of a myth or a story, and then history uh can, can be the same thing and myth mytholo- mythology is, is a different thing. anyway I, the main thing is that with with bart he believed in the virgin birth and that was scandalous to the other mm-hmm. guys to the other german theologians and liberal theologians he right. believed in the resurrection of jesus christ and the atoning death but what's interesting and this is so bart is that the, the resurrection and the, the Good Friday and, and the resurrection did not fall on a calendar day, but they did happen. But they also fell on a calendar day in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. But in Jesus, but Jesus Christ and Christ Jesus, they didn't fall on a calendar day. But in Jesus of Nazareth, they did. So it's just like, we, we don't preach... Uh, like he said when he was asked about the, the empty tomb, was the tomb empty? He was actually in a Time magazine article. They did a thing on him in the 60s, an entire <laughs> issue on Karl Barth. And he was asked, did, did Jesus rise from the dead? Do Christians believe in an empty tomb? And he said, no, we don't believe in an empty tomb. We, we don't preach about an empty tomb. We preach and believe a risen Christ. So it's like you see what he's saying and you're like, wow, yeah, that's awesome. But no. <laughs> that's not, not quite not quite but yes like that's why right. he's so compelling right anyway there's that and then van till spent you you start on van till how much time he spent with bart i mean we have 30 years 30 his, the majority of his life that was his life's work was carl bart well and and with, with uh Christianity and Bart-Nian. so there was a guy i forget what his name was but he went into so van till's study right was um uh, a guy went to go i think give a piece of his mind to van till because yeah. i think van till had just written something pretty scathing about carl bart and uh, he, he basically wanted to go tell him and say, you don't understand Bart. You've never even read Bart. You've never even read, read, read him. Yeah. So on the shelf, he sees the white elephant. And he opens up one volume and just page after page, there's just there's just notes in it and highlights and circles. And, and, and it's like a, the scribblings of a madman in every one mm. of these volumes of the white elephant. Yeah. And, and there was not a single square centimeter of, of a page on a single volume or page of the white elephant that Van Til hadn't scoured over mm. uh and and i would say van Til was was probably closer to carl bart than anybody else could have been yeah i mean i think i think van Til understood bart and that's where you get presuppositionalism that's right. that's you saw that as the biggest threat yeah to orthodox christianity yes um to the to the point that that an entire apologetic school was was formed yeah um 
and and because because Bart was so fluent in logic and and although he was a walking contradiction, contradiction <laughs> um that's why presuppositionalism i think was so important because mm. Karl Bart could say things were this was this and this and they seemingly were contradictions but they weren't right and, in and, Karl Barth's mind. In Karl Barth's mind. And that's what postmodernism is mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And that's what existentialism is in a lot of ways. And so you, yep. the, the presuppositional school, the Vantillian school was, uh, when it still was and is, I mean, even Sproul gave it that much credit, that it, it's one of the most powerful systems that destroys other systems. Yep. Uh, so, that, I mean, that's, Vantill had, a, had, I think, a, probably an unhealthy obsession with Barth. It's because he was calling. <laughs> he was sounding the horn before right. before it was even translated in English. That's why he read the White Elephant. Right. He said there was some stuff that was coming out in English, like other little articles and things people understood and knew about Karl Barth, especially in the PCUSA. Mm. But the main volumes, especially you know volumes of of his his stuff on um, creation and reconciliation, the, the doctrine of the atonement, mm. had not been published in English yet. Just a few of the volumes have been published in English. Right. And uh, he was already seeing the devastation those were causing, that God's word, the Bible is not God's word, but it becomes God's word, that Jesus Christ is the word of God. We don't worship a book, we worship Jesus Christ. Um, sounds great. Again, the implications of that are, are, are earth-shattering, that yeah. um, he, not only can the Bible be scientifically and historically inaccurate, it can have mm -hmm. errors in that sense, it can also have religious and theological errors. Right. But Paul, what's interesting is even in Paul and James and those kind of things, Karl Barth refused, refused to point out an error. He, he would not say, here's an error in the Bible, right. whether it was historical, anything. He wouldn't say there's an error. He just said, we have to understand that it's just like the incarnation. Jesus Christ was a sinful human in his flesh. Hmm. Uh, he had a sin nature, not a sin. He wasn't sinful. He had a sin, sin nature is what Karl Barth believed um, in his flesh. In the incarnation, God incarnate was in him. Jesus Christ was Jesus of Nazareth, and Christ was over Jesus of Nazareth, and he was Emmanuel, and, and all these things. So we see why Vantil Van, Van was way ahead of the stream, and that's why he had an obsession with Karl Barth. Yeah. Um, and when he, the few times he went to Germany, he he like made sure he found Barth's house, <laughs> or in Switzerland, sorry, and he made sure he found Barth's house. He went to uh, Basel primarily to meet Karl Barth and he found him and met him and stuff and talked to them and Bart said you've written some horrible things about me <laughs> and then they had uh, Staupitz they had they had uh, tea and and, and uh, little snacks and talked together so which which Karl Barth if you can actually there's video of him on YouTube yeah. uh, you can you can see him talking it's haunting because he's like this joyful weird eclectic guy Oh, very, very. Just like you, you can tell. Like I don't. I mean, it was yeah. it was cool watching him. Just his mannerisms and yeah, the way that he doesn't really take himself too seriously. It's just kind of yeah. like well, and he he understood that it was important for him to learn English so he could come here and lecture because he realized English was becoming quickly the theological language of the world instead of German, and he uh, came here to preach at Princeton. Uh, he gave some stone lectures and actually that's the volume. If you, if you ever see the volume evangelical theology, those are the lectures that Karl Barth gave yeah. at Princeton. And you can actually hear some of them online, uh, the audio from them. Um, yeah. He, uh, learned English by reading Moby Dick. <laughs> he just read Moby Dick and that's how he learned English and began writing letters to his friends in English and, and things like that. So, yeah. um, Who's who? Did someone say because he didn't want a he didn't want a book that had any sort of religious undertones? 
No, that was uh, Parks and Rec. Oh, that was <laughs> Ron Swanson. <laughs> he just quoted Ron Swanson. And they talk about Carl Bart. Uh, well, wrap it up, we're done here. <laughs> uh, that couldn't have been any better. Uh, so, uh, we'll, uh, we'll transition into... Uh, that, that's all to say Van Til made precept basically to to counter this because he saw this as so important yeah. and, and, and I, and then there's been a lot of debate online not about Ron Swanson but about um, Van Til presuppositionalism and classicism our so. production coordinator is losing his mind over there <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, if you hear yeah. the chuck so, ch- giggling so recently so and I, I think it's really important like if you study Bart at all which I think everyone should know a little bit about Karl Barth. I mean, yeah, you have to interact with the man. Right. Because like you, you, you understand, because I think, I think while Barth didn't become the great German hero that, that his peers wanted him to be, I think he left, a, he left an imprint on Western theology forever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think in the same way that, that Kant and Kierkegaard did. I think, I think Barth did even more so. Mm. Um, and so you, ha- you have to recognize that, that all of this, this liberal, quote-unquote, this left-leaning uh, school of thought that's, that's in the church today and in society today is sort of the, the logical progression of the postmodern thinking, the Enlightenment, um, where you lose a lot of definitions, you lose a lot of objectivity. And, and, um, and so I think presuppositionalism was so and is so powerful to, to castrate that whole line of thinking. I mm. think it completely... Uh, it, it completely destroys it, but but lately online and there's a book by Dr. Fesco that's coming out. I think it's going to be a pretty critical review of the presuppositional school. It's called Reforming Apologetics. Reforming Apologetics, and Jesus. and and R. C. Spr- the late R. C. Sproul uh, was, was pretty anti-covenantal uh, or presuppositional or Vantillian uh, apologetics. But but essentially, I want I want to talk about why that is. And I want to, I, I, if you, if you want a little bit more information on this, I did on my, on my webcast, Christ and Culture, I did a video, uh, kind of breaking down a debate that Dr. Greg Bonson and Dr. Uh, R.C. Sproul had together in regards to classicalist and presuppositionalist apologetics. Mm. So if you want to watch that, it's on my YouTube channel, Christ and Culture. Uh, the three, I would say, so, so in the debate, Dr. Sproul gives, I believe, six or seven major critiques of the Vantillian system. The three major ones that I that I think we should talk about today are the he said that that presuppositionalism in itself logically uh, disposes of natural law or natural revelation or natural theology um, because because of the nature of epistemology, right? So uh, you have this sort of thinking that epistemology leads to metaphysics. Um, but in the Vantillian school, metaphysics and epistemology are inseparable. Mm. You you can't split the two, and that was um, that, that I think. But Vantil probably got that from Bavink, but then added to it because Bavink also didn't really say that explicitly like Vantil and mm. Bonson do. But I think the problem there is in uh, the law of non-contradiction. Right, you have something that that is something cannot also not be something. Mm. Right, which is actually kind of Bardian, right? Something that is isn't. It? Yep. Um, but the the classical is their biggest trump card, so to speak. When they when they talk about presuppositionalist, they say that that it gets rid of natural law because someone cannot 
be in possession of knowledge of something and not be in possession of knowledge of that same thing. Mm. Which they say that, that the, the uh, exegesis of Romans 1 in the presuppositional or reformed view does just that. Um, so how can someone be possessing a knowledge of something and not be possessing a knowledge of something? Mm. And that's their trouble with it. And I, I would say it's just, it's not, that's not what, what covenantal apologetics teaches. Right. It's a um, straw man. It's a straw man. They're, they're arguing against the wrong thing. And, and I think they have to, because ultimately they'll, they'll say in R.C. Sproul, you know, it is, is beautiful of a mind that Dr. Sproul had. I don't think he understood presuppositional school that well, or at least didn't present it in, in an honest way or an accurate way. Ad- admittedly, he was very, very influenced by Aquinas. So. Yeah, yeah, abs- yeah, absolutely. One of his fav- favorite philosophers was with, with, the, with the five laws of, um, uh, what do you call it? Just the, I forget exactly what it's yeah. called, but you know the five? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I don't mean to. I'm, I'm not saying that R.C. Sproul was being intentionally deceitful or anything. No, please no. don't. Please don't take me that way. But I think what a lot of classicalists do is that that because historically, I mean, go to through any systematic theology on the being of God, and you will get a classicalist approach to the existence of God. Mm. You will get the ontological, the teleological, the I mean, every single argument for God, and they lay them out and critique them. Um, that's yeah. just that's that's part. And parcel of a systematic theology on the being of God. Yeah, it, that's the way it's always been done. It's never been done any different than that. And even Bavink did it. Yeah. Even Bavink did that. Yep. And 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 he, he he. I mean, he critiques it too, which which some systematic theologies don't. But but I think ultimately there there exists no systematic theology worth its salt that doesn't do that. Yeah. Uh, and 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 so I think I think the the, the great accusation. That that people give to presuppositionalism, I think it comes from a place of first of all saying you are abandoning the orthodox method of the being of God, hmm. right? Um, we've always done it this way. We've always done it this way, and then they accuse the presuppositionalists of what's called fideism, hmm. which is essentially that that faith is independent of reason, and uh, it, it's this very Kierkegaardian idea. Mm-hmm. They they accuse the presuppositionalist of a very Kierkegaardian leap of faith sort of ideology. And actually, in one of the lectures that that's, that Sproul gives, uh, back when he was a young buck, man, he looked good back then. Uh, he was a sharp man in, in his you know, in his thirties and everything. But uh, as like an amazing speaker too. Um, but but he says that he he makes the accusation that presuppositionalism is essentially fideism, um, in in the Kierkegaardian sort of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, that 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 faith is independent of reason. That 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 you can't know. Um, for certain that God exists, you can only do it in completely by faith, not by 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 your your faculties, right? Your intellectual faculties, and that then you know that faith is in a sense a weight of logical proof. Mm-hmm. And so this leads into the next. That was that's kind of the first thing: the destruction of natural law or natural revelation yep. or natural theology, which I just, I just don't think holds water. You know is you have to you have to argue a straw man to do that. Even Bart, I mean, talking about Bart, yeah. he was so against natural theology, right? Um, the idea that God can be known in any way other than Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, obviously, we're diff- different than that, but still, yeah. he, he em- Emil Brunner, another German uh, neo orthodox guy, who was like those. It was him, uh, Karl Bart, and uh, Rudolf Bultmann were like mm. the three big guys within yeah. crisis theology or neo orthodox theology. Yeah. Um, he, they uh, 
dialectical they went back and, yeah they went yeah they were dialectical theology they went back and forth um emil bruner and Karl bart about natural theology and <laughs> uh bruner published a book on natural theology titled natural theology that that became very popular bart wrote a book in response to it called it was just one word it was called nine with a <laughs> with a uh, exclamation point no no it was a re- and it was like and then the subtitle was a response to emil bruner's book natural theology so his book was nine that's amazing nine <laughs> so that's like, amazing uh so yeah i mean even in that view he he understood reformed theology enough to know that god has to be known in one way and it's in jesus christ which we would agree with that right. but we would believe that also in the scriptures so yeah so so this this great accusation from the classical classicalist school i think it comes from a place of you you are breaking the meta you are breaking the way this has always been done yep uh, you are abandoning the way that Orthodox Reformed Christianity has always done systematics, has done epistemology, has done everything like that. Which I would say it's not even. It's not, a different not really. time. It's a different time and day. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so the, the the first of all, there's a reason for that. I think there's right. a reason that that there's a shift. Uh, yes. But but all but but that particular way of thinking, I think, results in the rest of Doctor Sproul's critiques towards the, the school of presuppositionalism. Yes. Um, Basically, the critiques is that, that you have, as a result of this quote-unquote fideism, you have, which they're claiming as a Kierkegaardian, sort of existential kind of thing, mm. leads to a loss of integrity in the academy. So basically, people at the highest tier of intellectual thought, of thinking, right, are going to reject Christians that, that adopt this presuppositional school. Mm. And leading into that, it's going. You know, it's a reason that we're losing influence and in culture because we're unwilling to to meet people in the middle. We're un, unwilling uh, to 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 proof out using human philosophy uh, uh, the 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 proof for God. Mm. Um, and, and that was the fear that that Doctor Sproul had was that we were going to lose all credibility. Mm. Um, which which I think so. There's two things here. There's two things on that point. I don't think, I don't think that presuppositionalism is the is the problem here, Mm-mm. right? Presuppositionalism is is honestly a response to the fact that fundamentally Western culture changed mm. in the 20th century, maybe even before that. You had this shift where everybody presupposed some sort of deity, mm-hmm. right? Even all the classical, and we'll get into this in a sec. All the classicalist um, uh, approaches presupposed that that the 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 um the the posteriori the 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 conclusion that are drawn from these arguments have to be god mm. right it follows as as a logical necessity that you mm. that you that that god is the answer but in today's society guess what they do they say that's not that's not required mm. the god is not the nece- the necessary conclusion what are you talking about it could be mm. this it could be that it could be this historically that's never been the case right and so as, as a result, po- po- or presuppositionalism came in and said, no, we're going to take Romans 1 and we're going to take the scriptures and we're, we're, we're going to say, this is what the Bible, this is what God's word says about you. Yep. This is what's true epistemologically, metaphysically, and, and we're not going to pretend that these things are not true about the unbeliever and about the believer. Epistemologically, they're, they're on different playing grounds. Yes. And, and so that... You cannot pretend that a person can reason to the gospel if the gospel is foolishness to them. And that, and that was the, the shift in culture. And that's, that's what presuppositionalism attacked. 
was this mm-hmm. idea that that people were were ultimately inevitably going to come to the conclusion as a result of a first cause argument, for example, mm-hmm. to God, right? So the first cause argument, um, they believe that the posteriori, the natural, the, the necessary conclusion of this argument is God. So mm-hmm. let me present it to you. Th- that which exists had to have a beginning. Mm-hmm. If something had a beginning, then it had to have something that began it. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you have to have an ultimate beginner. Mm. Right, so if something's in existence, like the Earth, eventually, or or at some point, it had to have started. Right, right, and the starter had to have been an ultimate being without a first cause. Thus, thus, the first causer would have to be an ultimate being, would have to be God. Right, and so they say they will say that the natural conclusion, the necessary implication, is that the the non-believer has to come to the conclusion that there that there is a God, and they're rejecting him. And that's how they take Romans 1. Mm. But the, the reason that I know that Romans 1 is not done that way is because they hate God. They're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Mm. And as a result, when you present that argument to them, guess what they'll say? That doesn't necessarily mean that an ultimate cause started it. You can't prove that. It could have been a massive singularity that got super dense and blew up. Or it was eternal. Well, well, they they say that that the that the cause that started the earth doesn't necessarily have to be the ultimate cause. Right. That yeah, an ultimate cause might be right. So there's an infinite regression that leads to this sort of ambiguous, uh, this this maybe ultimate cause in in the so so what what historically what the, um, what the classicalist could have done would would be would be to presuppose that people would have come to the conclusion that that God was the ultimate cause of the earth. But what the atheist does now is basically says, I don't have to accept that presupposition. Right. I don't have to come to that conclusion. It's not, uh, it's not posteriori. Right. And, and, and that's where classicalism falls short. And, you know, you talk about, you, you talk about the, the, the failure of Christians to be relevant in the academy, to be relevant in society, to be respected by their peers intellectually. It is not... I repeat, it is not because of presuppositionalism. No. It, it is because, and, and parents, listen up. I know I'm a young parent, but let me tell you. The last generation failed to catechize their children. Yes. They sent them to university without proper upbringing. They did not raise them up in fear and admonition of the Lord. And so when they got to university... They, they spent the last, you know, they spent 30 to 40 hours, 40 hours a week with the state, with, with grandma state. <laughs> they spent 30 minutes an evening with the parents. They had sports all day Saturday. So they were raised and catechized by their peers, by their teachers, by the state. And from elementary school to high school, there wasn't that much of a secular slant. And you talk to any teacher, they'll tell you, we try to teach it neutrally. And for the most part... Up until that point, K through twelve, they do. Mm-hmm. But you get to university, a secular university, and even seminaries now, and and that professor is going to be relentlessly atheistic, mm. relentlessly humanistic. Even in your business classes, you will hear Darwin's name or something of the like. And and, and so I, I I you know respectfully disagree with with the classicalists here. You know, you know, I, I appreciate anybody who is defending the faith in a way that honors Christ the Lord is holy. But but 
you cannot pin the blame on presuppositionalism for this. No. Put the blame on, first of all, poor eschatology, poor catechesis, poor worldview, Weltanschung, mm -hmm. which is the German word for worldview. Pin that as the problem, but don't don't call fideism the problem. Don't call that the problem. Because um, first of all, presuppositionalism is not fideism. But even if it were, it would be better, <laughs> I think, than, than, than what, what's going on now. Because what's going on now is that, that Christian parents, and this is a warning to me and to Dane and to anyone who's a young parent, um, you have to catechize your children because they grow up and they fall away in college because they, were, they never heard the gospel once. They spent yeah. 18 years going to church and they didn't hear the gospel once. Mm. And that's the problem. That's the cultural problem within Christianity, not presuppositionalism. And that's respectfully, you know, what I have to say to this. I don't think that you can honestly, with integrity and with respect, put that kind of blame on presuppositionalism. No. And even and to piggyback right off that, before we close, close is, uh, I mean, I, I would go so far, and I think the presuppositional and reformed and biblical worldview causes you to have to go this far, mm -hmm. is that if you're a parent... Um, that if if or or just a married man, um, if you are a pastor or whatever thing you're doing in life that God's called you to, no matter if you if you're glorifying God and all that you do, if you're uh, winning people to Christ by whatever apologetic method, mm -hmm. um, if you're doing all these great things and you're a pastor and you're you're the pastor of a big church and you're you know faithful in your ministry and that, and yet you're not faithful to catechize your wife and your son. Mm -hmm. uh, faithful to do family worship with them, faithful to to uh, to read the Bible with them and pray with them and and, and lead them spiritually and be the priest of your home, mm -hmm. you have already failed and you are a failure. Right. Uh, you are a failure as a pastor. You are a failure as a uh, bank accountant. You're a failure as whatever you are if yep. you have not um, properly catechized your family yep. uh, because that is the first ministry of a man. And, and that, is, that, is the, that is the chief way that we, even, even um, Boyce in his systematic theology, uh, I'm not, I'm not, he kind of disagrees with Bavink a little bit here, but um, he says the primary way that people learn the gospel is through their tradition, through their upbringing, through their catechesis. Mm. Um, that you can trace that all the way back to the first man, that the parents taught their children the, 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 the gospel. Yep. Um, and we, we, we cannot, and, and the classicalists here, and I'll close on this, regardless of how you view the presuppositions, I think there's a lot of neo-reformed people, kind of the young restless reform movement, um, who use presuppositionalism as a blunt weapon. Yeah. And it's a shame that that happens. Mm. Uh, but, but I think, and you see a lot of that, you see a lot of that. Uh, but I think the takeaway here is, is that, that you're, you're, you're calling foul on Apollos, for baptizing in the name of Christ, right? You know, you're you're saying that 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 we're doing something inherently wrong, and I've even heard people compare the the uh, the impact of, of of presuppositionalism with Marxism. Worse. That is worse than Marxism, and I'm like, come on! I have spent hours and hours and hours debating atheists at the Secular Free Thought Society at ASU with classicalist approaches and let me tell you they don't care that was partially my fault i gave you william lane craig's philosophy yeah. <laughs> i didn't know what i was doing so so I, I think to kind of close this thought up you know you you 
to reject presuppositionalism as as a valid approach, I I think is a little bit ignorant of church history. Yep. Uh, it, it's it's ignorant of the actual use of presuppositionalism, and I think I think it's probably a little bit haughty to view classicalists as that much better or that has that much historical right so i i will just say to anyone watching here if you're unfamiliar with this discussion uh dr white does an amazing job on the dividing line this week i think it was on thursday tuesday 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 he, he did an amazing job uh laying out the value of presuppositional apologetics i would go watch that mm. If you don't know anything about presup and you want a good overview, that's a, that's the it, it was a tremendous, tremendous brief handling of presuppositionalism, and I I, I cannot endorse it more. Yeah. Um, but do the research, and if you see this sort of hostility, I, I would I would you know I've been rebuking these guys, yeah. and like you know I asked when I was like, what would you do if an atheist made you account for the laws of logic you were using, as a classicalist, and the guy said. I would not continue the conversation. Because he said, the opponent must presuppose the law of non-contradiction and reliability of our senses. Which is what Bonson calls the laws of logic and induction, the principle of induction. So he is, is, is presupposing the biblical worldview and will not talk to anyone who isn't presupposing the biblical worldview. So he's already pre <laughs> <laughs> So I mean, talk about the law of non-contradiction. But the, uh, so so the for any of you that I know, there we know a couple of, of historic of, of evidentialists. Um, look into Precep. You know the the book that you recommended, uh, Bonson's commentary on Van Til. Uh, Bonson's book on presuppositional apologetics. Check it out. Yeah, it's even shorter than that. It's much shorter. Um, you can take a look. I think I think John Frame actually. John Frame is precept. Put a really solid book out, but I think he also put out a book on classical apologetics too. Um, he he well he just had a couple of critiques of Van Til. Right, right. That was it. So it wasn't right. classical. And then Clark th Clark has a pretty has pretty good thoughts on it too. And I I think actually in Bonson's book he critiques Clark. Yeah. And so in, and in this because yeah. Van Til critiques Clark, Clark too. Uh, so, so that's been it for the Agros Church podcast. Uh, today has been a winding road, and I think I, I hope Bart would like this conversation. I feel like we. I think Bart would like any conversation. Yeah, I, I wish you were here to talk <laughs> with us. He'd probably confuse me. Um, so, thank you for tuning in. This has been the Agros Church podcast. I'm one of your hosts and ruling teaching elder of Agros Church, Taylor DeSoto. And I'm lead pastor Dane Johansson. Thank you for tuning in. We will see you hopefully next week. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Bye. Uh, Bonson's book on presuppositional apologetics. Check it out. Yeah, it's even shorter than that. It's much shorter. Um, you can take a look. I think I think John Frame actually. John Frame is precept. Put a really solid book out, but I think he also put out a book on classical apologetics too. Um, he he well he just had a couple of critiques of Van Til. Right, right. That was it. So it wasn't right. classical. Book. And then Clark th Clark has a pretty has pretty good thoughts on it too. And I I think actually in Bonson's book he critiques Clark. Yeah. And so in, and in this because yeah. Van Til cr critiques Clark. Clark too. Uh, so, so that's been it for the Agros Church podcast. Uh, today has been a winding road, and I think I, I hope Bart would like this conversation. I feel like we. I think Bart would like any conversation. Yeah, I, I wish you were here to talk <laughs> with us. He'd probably confuse me. Um, so, thank you for tuning in. This has been the Agros Church podcast. 
I'm one of your hosts and ruling teaching elder of Adventist Church, Taylor DeSoto. And I'm lead pastor, Dane Johansson. Thank you for tuning in. We will see you hopefully next week. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Bye. Bye. <laughs>